Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is God's word. Good morning. We are continuing on in our sermon series, Steady On, and the whole premise of the sermon series is that something is at stake, that there is some gain to be had for persevering and steadying on, that there is something to be lost for not steadying on. And our passage this morning is our first warning passage, the first significant warning passage that we're going to come to in the book of Hebrews. I know it's the beginning of spring break, and some of you, some of our congregation may uh, be out already sitting on a beach somewhere, but you're here going to get the first warning passage from Hebrews. So, I mean, I think that's a, that's a fair trade. This passage is a warning about what we stand to lose if we fail to persevere. There's going to be two more significant warning passages. One's going to be in chapter 6, we'll get to that, and then another in chapter 10. Significant extended warning passages. There'll be some other smaller, briefer uh, warnings that'll be worked in along the way. But this is our first extended warning that the author gives us. And these are important passages, however much they might make us squirm a little bit. Most of us, I presume, prefer happy messages to stern messages. It's very much the nature of the faith today. Even our Christian radio is positive and encouraging. <laughs> and I'm all for positive and encouraging. I really, I really am. But when positive and encouraging turns into don't tell me anything negative... Well, at that point, we've left behind biblical Christianity. I've been reading through, uh, for my own uh, devotions and quiet times, I've been reading through Jeremiah. I don't know if you've read through Jeremiah lately, but 
For the most uh, of Jeremiah, God is not particularly happy, particularly in the beginning of Jeremiah, which is where I still am. Jeremiah is referred to as the weeping prophet because he comes with the message of God's judgment. And one of the things that Jeremiah brings as a message of judgment from the Lord is to the prophets and to the priests who were supposed to be leading the people of Israel, but had failed to do so. And the Lord rebukes the prophets and priests by saying this, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And so here we have the author of Hebrews coming to bring a message of warning, potential message of judgment. And it would be remiss of me to pass over it and to say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Last week's message was to our fence sitters. If you were here last week, I had in particular uh, purview uh, for the sermon, those in our congregation who attend regularly but have not yet given themselves to Jesus. This week's message is for those who openly claim the name of Jesus, who have begun the journey of faith, but who maybe are right now in a season of life about thinking of turning back, thinking of going away. What does it really matter in the end if we don't persevere? What does it really matter in the end if we don't persevere? What do we lose if we don't persevere? That's the question that's before us this morning with this text. As I mentioned in the past, Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who have formally left Judaism. They've embraced Jesus, but it's opened them up to persecution, and so they're thinking about retreating back into their former way of life in Judaism as a way of avoiding persecution, and the author is writing to encourage this fledgling church to stick it out in faith with Jesus, and he began his letter talking about the superiority of Jesus to the angels, and then the superiority of Jesus to Moses, and the point of both arguments was to show that what these Christians have laid hold of with Jesus is better than what they've left behind. The first couple of chapters really are kind of the author holding out the carrot about what's to come if they persevere, the rewards, the blessings of faith in Jesus. But now we get to this first warning passage. The warning really begins in earnest at the end of verse 6, which we read last week but didn't spend a lot of time discussing. The last half of verse 6 reads, reads this, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We are the house that Jesus has built if we hold fast our confidence of course, raises the question about well, what happens if we don't hold fast? The author then quotes extensively in our passage here, beginning in verse 7, the author quotes extensively from Psalm 95. So you can see we have an extended quote that goes from verse 8 all the way through verse 11. The author has laid hold of Psalm 95, which is a psalm that is itself recounting a particular episode of rebellion in the history of God's people. You might remember the story of the nation of Israel. Perhaps you're uh, new to church. You don't remember all the, the Bible stories or they get jumbled up. That's fine. But, but God has promised his people that one day he was going to bring them to the land of Canaan 
which was the promised land. And here in this land, they would dwell with the blessing of the Lord in peace. They'd be delivered from all their enemies. They would know God's favor in this land. And so as the nation of Israel began to develop and mature and grow and expand, they always had in their mind this promise that they would be brought to the land. But God's people have been living in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Clearly not the promised land that God had promised. But finally, under the leadership of Moses, who we talked about last week, under the leadership of Moses, God sent Moses to bring the people out of slavery in Egypt all the way in to the promised land that he had sworn he would take them to. And so through great signs and wonders, the famous 10 plagues of Egypt, the great sign of the Passover lamb, Moses leads the people out of the land of Egypt. They miraculously evade Pharaoh's army. They escape through the Red Sea and they make it out of the land of Egypt into the wilderness and they are on their way to the land of Canaan, the promised land. And on the whole, things have been going remarkably well. But then they're out in the middle of the wilderness and they run out of water. It's a large group and water runs out and so they turn on Moses and they begin to bitterly complain against him for bringing them out of Egypt. You've brought us here to die, they say. And they're getting ready to stone Moses. They're so distraught. God miraculously provides water for them. But they continue throughout the course of their journeying to complain and to rebel. And things ultimately reach a nadir. They reach the low point when they get right to the borders of the promised land. They send in spies to check out the opposition that awaits them. And the spies come back with a report that the military forces in the land are too great that it can't be done. They can't go in. And so all of the things that God has done to bring them to this point, they despair. They forget about how they were delivered from, the, from Pharaoh and his armies. They forget about the Red Sea. They forget about the, the manna in the wilderness and the water from a rock. They forget about all God's provisions and they despair. And they refuse to trust Moses. And they say, let's go back to the land of Egypt. They want to turn around and they want to go back. Well, things get volatile and the judgment of God falls upon them, which is what our psalm here that's being quoted refers to. None of those who are brought out of the land of Egypt will enter the promised land. God swears in his judgment and his wrath that he will lay them all low in the desert. He doesn't do it all at once, though. He He turns them back into the wilderness where they wander for 40 years until all those who have been brought out of Egypt have died. And then he brings their children into the land. Verse 17 here in our text says, And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose body fell in the wilderness? This is a reference to that first generation who rebelled against Moses and God's command to persevere and enter into the promised land and instead turned back. So do you see the appropriateness of this story for the audience of Hebrews? The Israelites had begun a journey of faith towards God's promised land, a land of ultimate deliverance and rest. But when things got hard, they abandoned their hope and confidence in God and wanted to go back to their old life of slavery in Egypt. 
And that's the exact situation that the original readers of Hebrews are in. They had begun the journey of faith. They had laid hold of the promises of God. They had stepped out in confidence, trusted in Jesus. But now they were in the wilderness. And things looked difficult. And they were facing the giants, as it were, that were in the land before them. And they weren't sure that they had what it took to persevere. And so they're thinking about going back. And the author is saying to them, don't do it. Don't be like rebellious Israel in the wilderness. Don't turn around and go back. All that you long for lies out in front of you. And what's more, and here's the really important thing. To turn around now, the author is saying, will bring you under the wrath of God. If the Old Testament people of God who rebelled against Moses were laid low by God's judgment in the desert, how much more will we fall under the judgment of God if we turn away from Jesus? One of the first shades of a warning is found in chapter 2, verse 2. You turn back a page, you'll see it here, but the author asks a rhetorical question. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The answer is we will not escape. The message to the original audience is pretty straightforward. Just like any other journey, the author is warning his readers that they won't get the blessing that awaits them at the end of the journey if they don't actually reach the end of the journey. And the application for us, then, I think is equally plain. That we've begun the journey of faith is well and good, but we must continue in the journey of faith until the end. To give up on the journey of faith and turn away from Jesus is to give up any hope of participating in the kingdom of God. The plain teaching of this passage and the New Testament as a whole, the book of Hebrews, as we'll continue to see, is that those who don't persevere in the journey of faith will share the same fate as those who never began the journey of faith. It's a sobering passage. And maybe you think the author of Hebrews was just having a bad day or perhaps overdoing it a little bit. Jot this down. You can go there later. But 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, the Apostle Paul makes nearly the exact same argument using the story of the Israelites wandering out of Egypt, Egypt, having received God's deliverance and blessing, but but then turning against God in the wilderness and being laid low by God's judgment. And then Paul says to the Corinthians, don't let it happen to you. Now I need to pause here a moment. Normally at this point in the sermon, I would begin to exhort you and encourage you to hang in there, perhaps provide some useful sermon illustration, but I need to pause here a moment because I know this is raising questions for some of you, especially if you grew up in the sort of church that Calvary is. You're asking this question, but I, I thought we couldn't lose our salvation. Doesn't Paul say in Philippians chapter one that God who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it? 
And doesn't Jesus say in John 6 that all whom the Father gives to him, he will hold safely in his hand until the last day? Yes, the Apostle Paul said that, and Jesus said that, and that's the doctrine of eternal security. The doctrine of eternal security teaches us that we can't lose our salvation. Not all Christian traditions affirm a doctrine of eternal security, but here at Calvary, we do. It's in our doctrinal statement. And it's a glorious truth that gives us assurance and hope for the future. But here's an important caveat that often gets overlooked when some churches or traditions or Christians affirm a doctrine of eternal security. The doctrine of eternal security is only biblical when it is connected to a doctrine of perseverance. The doctrine of eternal security says that God will complete the good work that he has begun in us. The doctrine of perseverance says that God will complete the good work that he has begun in us. The doctrine of eternal security says that Jesus will hold us fast in his hand until the end. The doctrine of perseverance says that Jesus will hold us fast in his hand until the end. Or we can say it like this. We are eternally secure precisely because God has promised to complete the work that he has begun in us. But the doctrine of eternal security becomes unbiblical if we try to make it say something like this. I am eternally secure regardless of whether or not God completes the work he began in me. That's not the doctrine of eternal security. That's the doctrine of eternal security separated from the doctrine of perseverance. The doctrine of eternal security cannot mean I am eternally secure regardless of whether or not God completes the work he began in me. When Jesus assures us that he keeps us safely in his hand until the end, that's another way of saying that he keeps us safely in the faith until the end. Salvation is all about grace from first to last. But you might remember back to our uh, Family of God on Missions series. And the second sermon of that series, the first sermon actually I think of that series, we looked at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, about the nature of grace. Grace is not just God's forgiveness in our lives, though certainly it is that. But grace is God's power in our lives to enable us to walk in the ways that he is calling us to walk. Salvation is about grace from first to last. The grace of God that saves us in the beginning is the grace of God that enables us to persevere to the end. Those who are eternally secure in Christ, who have experienced his saving grace in the beginning, will be enabled by God's grace to persevere to the end. Verse 3, 14 in our passage brings this together, I think, in a way that maybe helps this make sense. Look at verse 3, 14. He says, for we have come to share in Christ if. How do we know we have come to share in Christ? What's the ultimate evidence that someone has come to share in Christ? Has come in the past to share in Christ 
if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The end of our lives demonstrates the reality of our faith in the past. Take it and read it the other way. We have not come to share in Christ if indeed we do not hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is the same thing that he's saying in verse 6 of chapter 3. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. We are currently the house of God. We belong to Jesus. We are the house that Jesus has built if indeed we hold fast our confidence. We don't hold fast our confidence if we turn away we are not and were not the house that Jesus has built. Those who don't persevere to the end do not and have not belonged to God. Keeping these things together can be hard to do, which is why some traditions just go one way or the other. Some will say, well, you better toe the line or you will lose your salvation. And they deny the doctrine of eternal security. And other traditions say, well, in the end, it doesn't really matter if you persevere or not. As long as you believed in the past, that's good enough. And they deny the doctrine of perseverance. But the Bible insists on keeping these two doctrines together, both eternal security and perseverance. Now, all of this can be pretty subtle. Slicing the bologna pretty thin, as one of my professors used to say in seminary. So maybe it's hard for you to kind of eternal security, perseverance, but quite not sure I understand how that all works together. Don't let whatever fogginess there is in your theological systems let you squirt out from underneath the clear teaching of this text. Don't read this text and say, well, whatever that means, it can't mean that. Let the force of this text press in upon you. Here's the punchline of this passage. You've got to persevere if you want to win the prize of eternal life. There is no other way to read this passage or the passages that will come throughout the rest of Hebrews. There is no such thing as abandoning the faith while yet expecting to receive the reward of faith. And some of you in particular need to let the force of this passage press down upon you this morning. This is a, a good word for all of us, for sure. But not all of us are like the Israelites at the threshold of apostasy, at the cusp of a decision as to whether we will walk back to our old way of life or press forward in the path of faith. But some of you are here this morning in that place, and you've perhaps drug yourself here, or someone has drugged you here this morning, and you aren't sure it's worth sticking it out in obedience to Jesus because it's costing so much. And I get that. You have my sympathies. The path of faith can be hard, it's hard to be in the wilderness and to persevere in obedience. It's hard for the original readers of Hebrews to stick it out in faith in Jesus, facing persecution. The path of faith can and will be hard. And there have been times in my own life when the obedience that faith required felt like a death, like giving up everything that promised me joy 
Some of you have been in that place. You're being asked to trust God in that place right now. And other times, the obedience of faith felt like I was being asked to walk into a hurricane, to go into a place that I didn't want to go. And we shouldn't expect that the path of faith will be any other way. Not every moment of the journey of faith is difficult. Praise God for that. But there is no getting around the fact that there will be moments in the path of faith that are difficult. Jesus said that the way to live is to die. And the only way that we will find our lives is to lose them. And that isn't just a reference to the very beginning of our faith. But that is the pattern for us all throughout the life of faith. Faith will, will indeed cost us something. But let me say to you in love this morning and with compassion, without judgment, please do not be fooled into thinking you can abandon faith in Christ and still expect that somehow you will be saved in the end. It just doesn't work like that. All of us struggle in our faith. None of us are perfect. We are all stumbling our way forwards at times. All of us make messes of ourselves at times. That's not apostasy. And that's not what this passage is warning against. What our passage is warning against is not falling down, but falling away. Giving up, abandoning the faith. I know that it's hard. I know that it can be hard. But keep pressing forward. If you fall down, get back up. Don't turn back. The end is worth it. What God promises you before you is so much better and worth the effort of the pain that he's asking you to endure than anything that you've left behind. I want to close with one other point. It's drawn from this passage uh, found in verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Exhort one another. The author sees that here this his listeners are on the cusp. Some of them want to go back, and he tells them, come together and exhort each other. Let me say this. We need to exhort each other into the faith. We need to cheer each other on. We need to encourage each other. But if you're the kind of person this morning that's teetering on apostasy, let me say this. Don't put yourself beyond exhortation. Walking the path of faith alone is not something we can do. We need to be exhorted in the faith. God has made us, as human species, dependent upon each other. This is just the way that we were made as human beings. I was watching a, watching a, a, a video of a, of a social science experiment. Maybe you've seen this one. But in this experiment, they were analyzing the way in which people respond to kind of the, the unspoken pressures of one's social peer group. And so a number of people signed up for this experiment and, and they were supposed to uh, uh, show the, uh, present themselves to a psychology office where they were going to uh, conduct this experiment. And so this lady walks into the office, she fills out the paperwork, she sits down in the waiting room, and what she doesn't know is that the other 10 people in the waiting room 
are part of the experiment. They know what's going on. She's the only one that doesn't know what's going on. And so as they're waiting to be called in back uh, into the offices to do the experiment, she's already in the experiment, and about every minute or so, a bell rings and everyone stands up and sits down. <laughs> and the first couple of times, she looks around. She doesn't know what's going on, but no one's making a comment. They're reading their magazines. They stand up. They sit down. And so after the second or third time, she just begins to stand up and sit down with them. She doesn't know why she's doing it, but she does. Well, one by one, all the other people in the study who knew what's going on are called back, back to the rooms to do the experiment until she's the last person in there. The bell rings. She stands up. She sits down. But it gets better. Because there's other people that didn't know what was going on who were also part of the experiment. And the next guy walks in, fills out the paperwork, and he sits down next to the lady. Now it's just the two of them. The bell rings, she stands up and sits down, and he says, why are we standing? And she says, I don't know, but that's just what everyone was doing. <laughs> so the next time the bell rings, he stands up with her, and they sit down together. And over the next 20 minutes, more and more people come in to the to the waiting room who don't know that the study is actually the waiting room. And by the end of it, all of them are standing up and sitting down every time the bell rings. So when I watched this study, I thought to myself, the message here is that we all need to be more independent. I would not, and I thought to myself, would I do that? Would I be that guy? There was one guy, interestingly, who came in towards the end. He didn't know what was going on. And he, he held out for a while. And he resisted it like four or five or six times, kind of scowling at everyone around him. But finally, in the end, he caved too. <laughs> and he began to just stand up and sit down. And I thought, the message of this might be we need to be more independent. But, but my second thought immediately was, this is exactly why Jesus calls us sheep. Because we are. This is human nature. We were made to influence each other, to trust each other, to depend upon each other, to follow each other. Like, this is what we do, right? When the group is going one way, we believe the best in the group, and even if we don't fully understand it or it doesn't entirely make sense to us, we just are inclined to go with the majority, and that's a good thing when the examples being set by our social group are right and godly and pointing us in a good direction. Then the way that God designed us to dwell in community with each other actually propels us forward into the paths that God has for us. But it's a problem when the examples being set by our social group are contrary to faith. Listen, here's the reality. I don't care how strong-willed you are, how independent you are. By the end of that experiment, no one was doing their own thing. Maybe there's some person out there in the world who could resist that indefinitely. But we are influenced by each other, and the people in our lives who are closest to us influence us. That's how God designed us. So I want to speak to those of you maybe again who are teetering on apostasy and I want to say who is your social group that is exhorting you and what are they exhorting you toward? 
Are the people closest to you helping you live more fully into your faith? This passage, of course, is calling us to exhort each other, that's right, but it's also calling us to keep ourselves in proximity of the believing community so that we can be exhorted to keep going. One of the very first moves that a person makes when they are consciously or unconsciously thinking about giving up on faith is to put distance between themselves and the community of faith. Do you find yourself growing less and less desiring to be among the people of God? Because they, in accordance with God's will, are standing up and sitting down, standing up and sitting down, standing up and sitting down, and you don't want to. But the pressure of conforming to the group around you becomes unbearable because you know you want to go a different way. At the end of the day, in that social experiment, probably the only way to keep from standing up and sitting down was to leave the room. And at the end of the day, if you want to walk away from Christ, you're going to have to put distance between yourself and the community of faith. Don't put yourself beyond exhortation. Don't put yourself beyond exhortation. To step away from the community of faith is to step away from the exhorting influence of the people of God that enables you to walk into the path that God is calling you to walk. Stay in there. Stay with us. Let the rhythm of the community of faith lead you back to faith. We all need each other. We all need people in our lives to come around us and to to hold us when we would be prone to wander. Stay in there. We're on a journey together, each of us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, believing that the reward that awaits us at the end is worth the pain of the journey to get there. Faith isn't merely believing the facts of the gospel. It isn't merely asserting that the gospel is true as though some historical affirmation. I believe in Abraham Lincoln. I believe in George Washington. I believe in Jesus. I just believe that they all were real. Even the demons have that kind of faith. Faith is believing that God is good for it, that he will make it up to us. Faith is trusting that our Lord wouldn't ask us to walk into the shadowed valley for nothing. And that as Hebrews 6, 7 goes on to say, faith is believing that God is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. Don't give up hope in the promise of God. Don't let the pain and the difficulty of the present or some temptation to the contrary cloud your vision of what God has promised you in the future. True joy, true happiness, true life, true blessing all waits for us at the end of the path of obedience, the obedience that comes from faith. God, thank you that you sent Jesus to walk the path of faith, to to get to where we are trying to get to, to show us that there is hope at the end of it all, and that you haven't just left us to ourselves to walk this path alone, but you have sent Jesus back by his Holy Spirit to come to join us in this trek and to exhort us by his word to walk and to continue walking in the path of faith. God, I pray for those here this morning who 
perhaps are at that place where they just don't know that they want to keep pressing on in faith. Maybe it's not even a conscious decision, it's a subconscious sense that's growing and they find themselves slipping away, they find themselves not wanting to be around the Christian community or to listen to exhortation. I pray, God, that you would draw them to yourself, keep them in the community of faith. May we all exhort each other, Lord, in ways that are helpful and necessary, full of grace, full of compassion, not judging each other, but but exhorting each other to keep pressing on in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.